again, friends, and welcome to Madison BookBeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Our guest today is UW professor Paige Glotzer, whose first book is the important and eye-opening examination of the origins of systemic racism in housing. It's called How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890 to 1960. It should come as no surprise that racial segregation has been a bedrock principle of suburban development from its very beginning, way back in the 19th century. In 1891, a British land syndicate called the Lands Trust Company purchased a large tract of land in northern Baltimore, Maryland, formed the Roland Park Company, and began developing what became one of the first planned segregated suburbs in the United States. How the leaders of the Roland Park Company formulated their exclusionary practices and extended their influence into the very structure of federal housing policy is the business that occupies Professor Glotzer in her revelatory investigation of racial capitalism, published by the good people at Columbia University Press. It's a narrative that even implicates some names well-known in Madison, including John Nolan, Professor Richard T. Ely, and realtor Paul Stark. Paige Glotzer is a graduate of NYU with a master's and PhD from Johns Hopkins University in the aforementioned Baltimore. Since 2018, she has been assistant professor and holder of the John W. and Jeannie M. Rao Chair in the History of American Politics, Institutions, and Political Economy at the fabled Department of History at the University of Wisconsin. In her young career, she has already received numerous awards for her scholarship on housing segregation, the suburbs, and related topics. And just last month, the Urban History Association gave Professor Glotzer its Kenneth Jackson Award for Best Book in North American History for what the association called a fresh and compelling examination of the real estate industry over the course of nearly a century, and how its leaders channeled private investment and structured public policy to support racially segregated suburban residential development in the United States. Which is why we have dialed up this special encore presentation of my conversation with her from the fall of 2020, with some new material recorded just a few days ago. It's a pleasure to welcome to Madison Bookbeat, Dr. Paige Glotzer. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on the well-deserved award. What does an award like this mean to a young academic? Oh, it means the world to me. I think it uh, validates that housing segregation is such an important topic to study and that more and more people need to really know about it. And I think even, even more so that kind of following the money behind housing segregation, which is such an important part of my book, is really an approach that is more people are going to take in the future when they when they study housing. So I I'm so honored. But on a professional level, what, what does it mean for your career to have your first book get get an award like this? Oh yeah, I mean, well, I think that it's um it's going to help bring visibility to to me, um, and I think that it also just raised awareness of my work with my colleagues and people in my field. So it's definitely going to give me some opportunities, especially opportunities to talk more with the public, which is what I really love to do with my job. Um, and I think that it'll hopefully generate interest with uh, my next research project as well, which I get to start now that the book is out. 
Yeah. Well, speaking of talking with the public, you were recently back in Balmer uh, for some pre presentations. What has been the reaction there to your book, particularly by the current residents of the suburb you focus on, Roland Park? Yeah, the people in Roland Park have always taken an interest in, in my work, even when uh, it was just in its early stages as a, as a doctoral dissertation. Uh, but seeing them come out, I recently gave two public talks there, my first and only in-person talk since uh, April of 2020. And they had great questions about where do we go from here? Um, and I think that that's really, for me, where the conversation has changed with residents of Roland Park and in Baltimore in general. I think that now um, in 2020, 2021, especially with the pandemic, people want to actually take action to really kind of you know, think about, well, how can we use this history to make things better now? So I think in Roland Park, especially people who read the book were like, okay, now that we know this, Paige, what can we do? Uh, what can we do about our covenants? Um, how can we sort of, you know, think about our assumptions about how and why our property is so valuable? Um, and it's really great to hear. And that, that has definitely changed. How widespread was the awareness of this before your book in that community? Um, so I think that people in Roland Park and, and also in the um, Roland Park Company neighborhoods were a little savvy about their history. Um, I think they knew, say, about racial restrictions and the history of prejudice in Roland Park. But I think what really is changing now is that they're more aware of the legacy of that history and that it still has consequences in the present, meaning that they themselves are beneficiaries of uh, a century of exclusion. I think that now kind of connecting the past to the present is definitely, I think, where the where people are going and thinking now that they, they've kind of done this reading. Do you see your role as just documenting how we got here, or do you feel that you also have to offer ideas on how to get to someplace else? People always ask me, okay, what do we do now? And I, I have to be careful with that because I'm a historian and I'm not an expert on all the conditions informing how cities work now. But what I can do, and what I think historians can do in general, is we can um, tell people to think about how they ask questions how they might be able to interpret what they see around them and hopefully give them the tools to seek out the additional expertise from people like city planners, economists, neighborhood activists. So I think what it, what I see my role is doing um, and what I see historians is doing is using the past to really give people that different perspective on how the present really can look and feel. How has the virtual world and the ability of sharing the documentation, letting people see the maps of, of Redlane. How, how has the new technology and the democratization of the dispersion of information affected your research and where it goes from here? I do think there, there continues to be a, a positive, almost shock value to when people see things like a redlining map or see some documents where uh, developers are explicitly talking about um, excluding Jews or is saying their thoughts about African-Americans um, and which is which are documents that I found a lot when I was in the archives. Uh, that shock value, I think, really reorients people saying, oh, yeah, 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 I know history. I know, of course, housing was segregated. There's something about being able on a wide scale for folks, I think, to see what it actually looked like, the nuts and bolts of it, that really makes people stop and think like, oh, wow, this is really, really important. And I think that the, because of the ability to disperse that information, 
to um, really around the world, I think that I've seen more people take an interest then in actually understanding those nuts and bolts because it is so visually surprising. Has all this information been hidden in plain sight all these years? Some of it, yes. Um, I mean, Kenneth Jackson, of, of all people, um, famed kind of urban historian, really was uh, uncovered redlining maps in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and that, so I think that they've been percolating for a long time. But I really think that over the last 10 years or so, um, there's been a much more public facing conversation as part of a larger conversation about racial justice. Uh, and that happens to coincide with the technological developments to really kind of spread and share uh, things like redlining maps widely. So now when I walk into a room for a public talk or even in my classroom, more people than ever even know what the term redlining means. When I first started out, I just always assumed I had to explain that. So I think there's something really changing uh, in the conversation. Was housing segregation inevitable? No. It was not. And I actually talk about this in my book. Uh, I wanted to end my book on a, I think, an optimistic note because it is a very depressing topic. And it's something that I think gives a lot of people really pause. Like, how can we ever change something that has been so persistent? And I say in the book, you know, housing, housing segregation is persistent, but it wasn't inevitable. And I think the way I show that is that I really, I had to really look at how developers maintained it and worked to build it and experiment it. So there was actually a lot of work that went into actually creating the conditions of housing segregation. And there was a lot of challenges to it, sometimes successful challenges. So I don't think it's inevitable. I just think that it is it is very entrenched. But because of that, I think it means that things can be changed. And that is a perfect segue to pick up the original conversation that we had earlier. And we'll play that now. Set the scene both geographically and conceptually in 1891 when Edward Boughton arrives in Baltimore as general manager of the Roland Park Company. So Edward Boughton came from Kansas City, Missouri to Baltimore and he arrived when Baltimore was the sixth largest city in the country. And he looked around and said, hmm, there are probably things that some of Baltimore's elites are getting very nervous about as Baltimore grows and grows and grows. So Baltimore was becoming increasingly industrial, but it was also becoming increasingly diverse as it was a major port of immigration and a major city of migration from people from all over the United States. And it was also getting a little crowded. What Fountain did was he helped to find a corridor where he wanted to channel those elite white Baltimoreans into a new type of housing. So a few miles outside the built-up section of the city, he helped to arrange for the purchase of several uh, large tracts of land that were formerly slave plantations and hired planners and created the first, one of the first planned segregated suburbs in the United States. In terms of architecture and occupants, is Nakoma the closest comparison in Madison to Roland Park? I would say so. Single family, detached housing, comfortably set back from the street, generally um, an array of kind of beautiful revival styles that were very heavily influenced by Europe, very leafy, winding roads. When I first arrived in Madison, after years in Baltimore, I looked around the comments and thought, oh, this is Madison's Rolling Park. Yeah. And in fact, as, as you know, we even had our own racially restrictive covenant prohibiting members of the Ethiopian race from occupying any uh, property. We, we can get to that in, in a little bit. 
Boughton and the company had three major tasks, plan the built environment, advertise the new subdivision, and establish the rules and relationships that would govern it. How did those three jobs, and especially the concept of nuisance, combine to create this unprecedented expansion of restrictive covenants? Roland Park was a bit odd in that its investors, those British people, needed returns year after year after year. So a lot of the, the rule setting that was unique to Roland Park was unique because there was this different business model. And so a lot of the decisions, whether it was community use or the planning, uh, it was done with the idea that it was going to create a sense of stability and also be a counterpoint to some of those fears I mentioned earlier about potential unpredictable change, growing diversity, and also just like the unpredictable shape of urban growth. So what uh, the Roland Park Company did was they took some pre-existing types of land use control, including this concept of the nuisance, which is actually municipal law. Going back over a century, cities were actually able to regulate what went where on the basis of would it be healthy or unhealthy, dangerous or toxic to people. So that's where you get slaughterhouses, for instance, or factories kind of potentially relegated to the outskirts of the city based on this idea that they would be nuisances. What they did was they took that tool and they applied it to an entire community rather than say an individual lot or an individual building. And they did it through implying restrictive covenants with similar clauses to every track, every lot in the subdivision. So that's what actually makes uh, Roland Park unique in terms of being a first. It retooled some existing modes of segregation and restriction and put it into a whole community-wide way of creating um, essentially an exclusive neighborhood. And how did that play into how they advertised Roland Park? When they advertised Roland Park, they uh, first advertised restrictive covenants, but also had to teach people what they were because land use restrictions of that type were actually new to people. So their advertisements were also educational saying, Baltimore, you do want places that are controlled and that are stable and that are going to be full of people who look just like you. Don't be afraid, right? You, you might be afraid of parts of Baltimore. You might be afraid of disease, but none of that exists in Roland Park. It'll be safe, as they said. It'll be healthy. And they introduced the language of the undesirable neighbors, that you'll be free from undesirable neighbors. Now, even though Bounton's lawyers told him he couldn't outright ban blacks from Roland Park as he wanted to do, were these restrictive covenants inherently racist? Yes, from the very start. And I think you can see this in a few different ways. One is the very, the very letter that Bounton wrote to his lawyers. What happened was when the Roland Park Company was making these covenants, they wanted to put a racial restriction in there from the very beginning. Now their lawyer said, actually, that's, we've not really heard of that before. That's, no, don't do that. But the intent was there. And so the restrictive covenants, the early ones, which don't have a race restriction, and the later ones, which do, have also different ways of encoding race and class segregation into seemingly colorblind rules about what houses had the cost how they had to be moved back from the street. And also, essentially, there were different ways of controlling in the planning who could live there, such as only opening up space for churches rather than synagogues, for instance. So absolutely from the start, the idea was to use these criteria to strictly control 
who could qualify to live in Roland Park. And race became a huge central point to that. And it was a huge central point to Baltimore kind of geography and politics in general. So people were able to read between the lines anyway and know what some of these things meant. Of course, sometimes Baltimore didn't even bother with the fig leaf of deniability. And you see something like the so-called West Ordinance where they outright regulate what blocks whites and blacks can live on. Yes, so Baltimore was the first, not just for segregated suburbs, but for trying to use zoning, uh, another form of land use regulation to control, actually map out and control which race of people could live block by block. And this was actually spurred by a neighborhood association in a neighborhood in Baltimore where a lot of the residents were leaving to go to Roland Park. And folks that were moving in were wealthy African-American lawyers, Jews, there, were, there was like a gorgeous synagogue that was built in that neighborhood. And so this was a way that those people who couldn't say put restrictive covenants onto their older, really beautiful, large row houses said, let's go to city government and see if we can have a form of this written into city law itself. So there was actually a relationship even between that Baltimore first and the existence of the Roland Park Company's restrictive covenants. We're talking with Dr. Paige Glotzer. Her book is How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890 to 1960. One of the fundamental realities of any development is its infrastructure, particularly streets and sewers. Explain how the Roland Park Company got the public to underwrite its sewer development and do so in a particularly racist manner. The Roland Park Company helped to change Baltimore's master plan proposed sewer system by laying out the money that they had. They had money as developers that most of Baltimore did not. And they said, we actually don't care that the priorities of the sewage plan is to help people out um, in areas with epidemics, poor areas, or so forth. And we want them first. It would help us sell our houses better. So the Roland Park Company actually worked with the city to lay out the money, do some of that work, and then were paid by the city to have those sewers that it kind of built incorporated into the system later. So they shifted those priorities and actually jumped ahead of people in parts of Baltimore who needed it, especially people who were in poor areas. However, Roland Park already had some sewers. And this is actually where you see how infrastructure, the decisions to lay out certain types of infrastructure can be very racist. Prior to even working with the city, the Roland Park Company built a private sewer system for a part of its development. And they actually had those pipes directed underneath and through a pre-existing African-American community that was already there called Cross Keys. And all of Roland Park sewer emptied out essentially into the river, into the swimming spot where the children in that, in that neighborhood would go. And so part of the very beginning of Roland Park entailed actually making water hazardous for a black community. And then piece by piece, actually, they took more and more sources of water from that uh, community, from Cross Keys, and incorporated it into Roland Park's water system. Then what they did, which I found fascinating, was they turned around and said, you know what, the African-Americans in this community don't know how to be clean. They used some really long-standing racist ideas about cleanliness uh, and, and African-American people. And they said, they don't have to be clean because they had these buckets that they used to catch rainwater. Well, they had buckets to catch rainwater because Roland Park took all their water sources. So it reinforced 
uh, the way that the company and the residents then regarded African Americans who live nearby. And then they blame the people in Cross Keys for their mosquito infestation. Right, and from these, from these buckets of standing water. 1911, Roland Park Company acquires the land for a subdivision to be called Guilford, and Boughton finally includes his long-desired racial restriction, explicitly prohibiting, quote, any Negro or person of Negro extraction from occupying any land or building other than as a domestic servant or other employee. And not only that, but he adds insult to injury, and he includes it in an expanded nuisance clause right between the bans on livestock and producing excess smoke. How did he do that? Why did he do that? And how long did that clause remain valid? Well, that clause remained valid until the company went out of business in 1959. And then even then, it remained in some of the deed restrictions until the passage of fair housing laws in 1968. So it never went away once it was there. But why was it important? It actually was so unremarkable for the company that they never, they never left the record saying, oh, okay, we're about to go and do this now. They just did it. And they did not differentiate how they regarded what they considered negative qualities of people, like being African-American was a negative quality to them, and how they regarded using property, like living in it or raising livestock in it. So what you see is, again, another way that kind of racist ideas about both people and the use of property get all mixed up into a legal document that had these huge consequences for decades and decades. Was this valid even after the 1947 Supreme Court decisions? That decision, Shelley versus Kramer, ruled that uh, racial restrictions were unenforceable, but they didn't say they were unconstitutional. So essentially, developers, including the Roland Park Company, left them in, anticipating they would go unchallenged. And as long as they were unchallenged, there was no question of enforcement. Ah, we're recording this show to air Monday on Yom Kippur, so we should note that Boughton and his sales manager, Guy Holiday, were not just racist, but also anti-Semitic. Talk about what you discovered in unearthing the company's so-called exclusion files. Massively anti-Semitic, I should, I should add. So the exclusion files were one of the biggest surprises I found when researching this book. They were a type of tool different from restrictive covenants. Restrictive covenants were public-facing and they laid a blanket prohibition, uh, African-American purchase. Exclusion files were these private documents that were only meant to be seen in the company's office. And what they were, were documenting salesman encounters with people who seemed to be good fits for the Roland Park Company's development. But then the salesman might have some type of red flag, like, hmm, what about this person's last name? Or how does this person look? Or what social networks do I think they keep? So what they would do is say if someone had a name that they thought was Jewish, they would investigate this prospective homebuyer behind uh, their back. And if they found out they were Jewish, and there were some other criteria, but Jewish was like a really big one, they would immediately stop the sale. And they wouldn't necessarily tell the person that they, they were being excluded because they were Jewish. They simply would not do business with them. And they would write on these exclusion files, Jewish, with exclamation point, and they would stamp it, exclusion, exclusion file. They actually had a stamp made that said exclusion file. That's what they would do as part of their everyday, seemingly boring business practices. It was having to make these little decisions about how to organize their sales and their office organization around 
in very anti-Semitic types of practices. And they'd even go into their homes and evaluate how, what good, how uh, homemakers they were. Yeah, so there's one incident I discuss in the book. Uh, now, this, this wasn't from a, a Jewish family, but it was from a Lithuanian family. And so the, they also were potentially you know, not a good fit because certain immigrants, especially from Southern or Eastern Europe, were also potentially being suspect by the Roland Park Company. And at this point in history, we're not necessarily considered as white as, say, people from Northwest Europe. And we see this on the inclusion file, is the red flag the salesman had was potentially the name and the address of this family. And then they said, okay, they seem to maybe pass muster, but something tipped the salesman off about appearance. And so they had the only woman employee of the company uh, named Edith McHenry, and her title was the female investigator, they called her, go into the home and using her womanly knowledge, as they would describe it, pass judgment on the housekeeping and appearance of the wife. And on those grounds, they were being too foreign and quote, not too hot. And so they were disqualified, even though those characteristics were not necessarily going to be visible around the neighborhood, but housekeeping meant that they were not American enough and not white enough to live in the segregated suburb. When I brought that up, you expressed shock <laughs> that even, even remembering that episode <laughs> causes you dismay. We're talking with Dr. Paige Glotzer. Her book is How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890 to 1960. One of the reasons the Roland Park Company was so important is that it set the standard for future upper-class suburban developments and that among the planners who copied and incorporated the deeds was the man who wrote our defining text, Madison, the model city, the venerated John Nolan. Did Nolan use the original Roland Park deed without the explicit racial restriction or did he use the openly racist Guilford deed? He used the openly racist Guilford deed. Oh, that is so disheartening. I can't tell you how upsetting that is. I think speaks to speaks to how housing segregation work and that Nolan was never sitting around twirling his mustache thinking of himself as a racist but he was part of a system uh, and of an emerging profession where it was just the norm for the white men who tended to lead these professions and exclude other people from participating in them so I don't necessarily know how Nolan felt about it I just know what Nolan was willing to do I mean, Roland Park was a very successful development. So uh, naturally, other developers around the country would look to it and look to the people who did it. H how much were the Roland Park people and Roland Park itself setting the national standard? They were setting the national standards pretty early on through a, different, a few different ways. And one of this is what Nolan was uh, involved in, in that people would write letters to them and ask for copies of the covenants or their plans, and the company would send it. And so you can actually concretely trace how these ideas and these documents moved around the country and not just from other developers, but planners like Nolan. Uh, and so then the architects of all types of municipal zoning laws, of textbooks and classes that trained planners and realtors, they all essentially were using a kind of body of, of literature based on developers stuff, including the Roland Park Company. And it wasn't just that they set the example, but that the individuals themselves who created Roland Park would create the national real estate practices and ultimately federal housing policy. 
start with the role that the leaders of the Roland Park Company played as leaders of the National Association of Real Estate Boards. The National Association of Real Estate Boards was a body, uh, essentially the first real estate professional association on a national level. And their aim was to take all the different local practices around the country and to help standardize them and create one national real estate industry that all operated on the same set of principles. The early leaders of the, of the association were often suburban developers because they were considered to be the, the realtors with the most clout and prestige. So they were kind of put into this position of respect and power. Uh, and that also meant then that the ways that suburban developers would conduct business stood in as the best examples of real estate practice. So this meant that things like racial segregation made it into all sorts of bylaws and all sorts of books and all sorts of documents from the National Association, including their code of ethics. So licensing laws, which this association was behind, and the code of ethics, which is ground for expulsion and loss of license, actually included the notion that realtors could not mix races in a neighborhood because that was inherently unethical and it would damage the property and the neighborhood around it. The, the actual language from Article 34 pro, pro, prevents realtors from, quote, introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individual whose presence will clearly be detrimental to property values in that neighborhood. You recently realized that there was a local realtor, a very prominent local realtor, who was instrumental in making these rules go national. Yes, that was Madison's own Paul Stark, uh, who was president of the National Association of Real Estate Boards in 1937, the year most redlining maps were actually made. And they were made in consultation between the federal government and the National Association of Real Estate Boards. So Stark uh, was working from the association side, often as government consultants, as well as, as lobbyists to try and shape the legislation and the administration of national housing policy in ways that the National Association of Real Estate Boards thought was best for it. So Stark was behind that. And I actually went back and looked at some of the uh, national newsletters from 1937 from the association. And Paul Stark took a lot of pride in actually trying to expand. Um, this isn't in the book, but he took a lot of pride in trying to actually expand the purview of uh, these discriminatory housing policies to construction of massive subdivisions. So Paul Stark said one of his greatest accomplishments was applying the rules of the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the Federal Housing Association, so the redlining people, to the future construction of large subdivisions. We're gonna get into the federal rules and the federal programs in a moment, but on Paul Stark, as I mentioned to you, Paul Stark was the sales manager for the Nakoma Homes Company developed in the neighborhood where I live. And when they circulated the petition to add the restrictive covenant to ban Ethiopians from our neighborhood in 1931, which strikes me as fairly late in the day, Paul Stark did not sign that petition. And I have no idea why, because in his capacity as Barrett president, he was very much complicit in having the association work with the federal government to form its redlining practices. 
so I think that's a great way to show how we may not know, again, like the individual intents of specific people. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. And maybe Paul Stark changed over time. But in his, some of his most important and nationally reaching roles, he helped to create the discriminatory system that we know as redlining. As a professor at the University of Wisconsin, I'll tell you someone who did sign the petition was the future president of the University of Wisconsin, Conrad Elvium. Wow. You know, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. In Baltimore, um, there were deans and presidents of Johns Hopkins who showed up to help the company investigate people for the exclusion files. So the proximity of the university to an upscale segregated development and conversations occurring between administrators and developers was something that went on in Madison, but around the country too. Future Governor Oscar Rennebaum, however, did not sign the petition. So it's, it's, a, it's a very interesting, uh, it's a, it's a it pretty interesting neighborhood. Uh, one more thing on, on the Real Estate Examining article, Board's Article 34. There was a realtor in Madison in the 40s named Fran Ramika was fined and suspended because she sold a house to a black family in a white neighborhood. She paid her fine and quit the Realtors Board. And then that same woman was the woman who led the fight to protect the Italians and the Jews and the Blacks against urban renewal in the 1960s. I, I wish there were more stories like that um, circulating. Uh, I think that it's an amazing testament how, to how not everyone essentially thought the same way, even if they were kind of maybe coming from a certain background or part of a certain organization. Um, but I think it's also important to note, too, that urban renewal, which happened in the 1950s, 60s, very often areas that were demolished, like Greenbush, received really low grades on those redlining maps. And so there's still this, this legacy that was really, really hard to counter, even as some people's views started to really change. In terms of the Roland Park people and the Real Estate Examining Board people, it wasn't just national expectations they set, but they actually set official government policy. How did these guys get their hands on the levers of the federal government at the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the Federal Home Loan Bank Board and the Federal Housing Administration? The National Association of Real Estate Boards had as a wider mission to, uh, to professionalize real estate. They wanted to essentially create a reputation for themselves that would counter this idea that realtors might be scam artists or untrustworthy. And so they became this very powerful central organizing association that also seemed to be uh, experts at knowing everything about real estate. The federal government did not consist of experts in real estate. Um, and then when the, the Great Depression happened, it became very clear that Housing was at the center of an economy that was in shambles and something needed to be done from the federal government side, from the side of the New Deal, that maybe had never been done before. So what they did, and this wasn't unique to housing, the federal government sought out the industry leaders, the people they thought were industry leaders, to help write New Deal rules that would affect that particular sector of the economy. And so it meant that the federal government, the people in charge of housing, reached out to the members of the National Association of Real Estate Board. So they saw them as the people to consult. And this happened nationally, but then it also had a local versions where uh, when the rules were being implemented city by city, it was those local realtors who helped to implement and shape those rules based on their local knowledge as well. 
And once they got in these positions of, of the Homeowners Loan Corporation, the Federal Home Loan Bank Board, and the FHA, how did they codify segregation once they were in those positions? So they looked at what they thought worked for them, such as their code of ethics, such as restrictive covenants. And they said, okay, we know common sense. We've made the common sense principles of the real estate industry. And they had, they had academics to help back that up in terms of economic principles. And so what they said was, this is what you need to do if you want an economically sound housing policy. But economically sound for realtors meant things like associating race and property value. And so they helped to write the rules, but those rules go right back to those segregated suburbs uh, and the leaders of, those, of the association who were developers of segregated suburbs. So it's this long history of continuity in a way in which Roland Park from 1890 becomes, their restrictive covenants become part of the basis for redlining criteria in the 1930s. And one of those academics is Wisconsin's own Richard T. Ely. Ely really helped to um, lend a kind of academic sheen to, uh, to turn what, um, what they called realology into a type of organized discipline. And so this was uh, very prominent in the Midwest, especially at Wisconsin, in Chicago. Uh, and you really, you really see uh, that partnership between realtors and academics as a huge leap forward in how realtors were recognized as professionals and as experts on how real estate works. One of the things the Homeowners Loan Corporation did was institutionalize the use of security maps to decide where to issue loans, which is where we get the phrase redlining. How does the Waverly Project show the degree to which New Deal housing programs were embedded with racism? The Waverly Project, as I talk about in the book, was an actual kind of moment where all different federal uh, agencies and local agencies, some of them were involved with redlining, some of them weren't, all came together and used the principles behind redlining to actually do something experimental, which was try to stop a predominantly white neighborhood from potentially changing and becoming a majority black neighborhood. And so the core principle at this point that you can see emerging is a type of federal consensus around the idea that African American neighborhoods were going to be less valuable and thus also worse for the federal government to financially help out. So what happened with Waverly was twofold. One is that Roland Park, which is the Roland Park Company's subdivisions right next door. And so the company officials really wanted to be involved in this project and keep Waverly white because that meant that it would also be keeping a kind of buffer zone around the Roland Park Company development. They pulled a lot of resources and essentially created um, all sorts of incentives and opportunities for Waverly residents to remain in their homes and not have their homes foreclosed upon, um, to not have their homes fall into disrepair. What happened then was they split Waverly in two because what they did was they chose the part of Waverly that was majority white, but there actually was a part of Waverly that had been majority black already. That part was redlined. And sure enough, those two, those two parts of Waverly diverged and the redlined part of Waverly actually met the wrecking ball and was completely redeveloped into feder uh, federally and municipally funded segregated housing afterwards. And explain just how real the phrase redlining is. Where, explain to people where the term redlining comes from. Redlining is actually a very literal term. So in order 
for the federal government to determine which neighborhoods and cities would get federal mortgage assistance during the Great Depression, they made these so-called security maps. And they said, okay, we're going to grade areas based on how risky it is for the federal government to invest in those areas because a mortgage requires time to be repaid. So they wanted to see what the risk was that if they made a loan in this area, it would get repaid over time. Using criteria that really comes almost straight from restrictive covenants, uh, they decided that the areas that were riskiest, meaning that they were the least valuable and that they would lose value over time, really involved areas that uh, were majority African-American, or actually, to be honest, even had almost any African-American presence in it. So what happened was race became a central criteria for who got essentially opportunities from the federal government and who got ignored. Now they colored in those low graded areas red on the map. And essentially that led to all different types of disinvestment and discrimination over time and also made those areas more likely to face uh, demolition uh, when you got into urban renewal later. And so a redlined area was just that, an area that was depicted on these federal maps in red and essentially became no-go zones for all the different federal opportunities that then allowed people to later potentially access suburbs or finance new housing construction, especially after World War II when there was a huge post-war housing boom. And one of the young mortgage bankers who enforced those discriminatory FHA rules and Jewish quotas for the Roland Park Company was someone who had become quite famous and successful a generation later, James Rouse. Was, was he conflicted, a hypocrite, a bit of both? I actually chose to highlight James Rouse in the book because he considered himself to be very liberal and he considered himself to actually be at the forefront of progressive racial thinking in the real estate industry. And actually, to some extent, that, that was true relative to, say, the leaders of the Roland Park Company who um, were completely opposed to racial integration. But I think why I do that is to get the point that just because Rouse thought he was liberal didn't mean he was, say, anti-racist. A lot of the things that he did, such as help to demolish housing in the red line part of Waverly, create a gated community on near, that, near an African-American community I mentioned earlier, which had been demolished, what he did was essentially reinforce older notions of racial segregation, but they were essentially things that he adapted for a changing world. So he thought that he was liberal. African-American activists in Baltimore looked at him and said, you are a racist. You are still furthering segregation. And it just, I think it just shows that when it comes to real estate, sometimes political views don't necessarily map on to what uh, white realtors were willing to do in the name of what they thought was protecting property values, which was so inherently based on racism to its core. And finally, explain how Rouse's frustration with the so-called Baltimore plan, or as I think they say, their Baltimore plan, changed his views on urban renewal and helped bring your story completely full circle to the incredibly named Village of Cross Keys. Oh, the village of Cross Keys. So I opened the book with Cross Keys, which was a village, that African-American community that predated and was next to Roland Park. And I end with the village of Cross Keys, which was Rouse's gated community, which essentially was still in some ways quite segregated, named, uh, he, he never said it was named after the, uh, after the African-American village. He said it was named after the inn that was just down the road. 
So basically, Rouse was instrumental in helping to essentially demolish black neighborhoods in Baltimore and then erect gated communities that were heavily restricted and affluent and exclusive. And he actually then, because of that name, he did to this day, the African-American community of Cross Keys is largely forgotten in Baltimore, and people associate that name with Rouse's gated community, which had essentially used tokenism and quotas. It let in a, one or two black families and said, okay, we're integrated, we're done. We don't want to go any further than this. It appears that in the late 70s and early 80s, one of the residents of the village of Cross Keys was a local TV personality named Oprah Winfrey. Do you think she knew that history at that time? I, I feel like Oprah probably knows things and new things, <laughs> uh, but I can't say for sure. Um, but I would say that, you know, for, for Black people living in Baltimore, there was always um, a, a knowledge of how segregation worked historically and was working all around them, regardless of the potential individual conditions they may have found themselves in. When I said that, you got a look of, of shocked amazement on your face. <laughs> I mentioned in our earlier conversation that I live in Tacoma, where we have the restrictive covenant, uh, covenant 13 about Ethiopians. When I bought my house in the late 80s, I insisted that the title company, bad term, white out that restrictive covenant so it was no longer physically part of my deed. Was that a mistake? Should I have retained it as part of the historical record of Madison's racism? is part of the historical record, even if you white it out. Uh, I know that just because of the way that deeds and covenants are filed, um, and there are copies, plenty of copies uh, of covenants from the coma in the archives, in, in city records that will continue to have it. So I think that the act of whiting it out is actually quite a powerful one, precisely because that is you and I think wh however many other residents ever decide to do that, really taking a stand and saying, this is not what our Nakoma will be in the future. Except we should come up with a better term than white out, we should, you know, mask or, or something. Like that. <laughs> right. uh, you conclude the book by saying that just as segregation was not inevitable, neither is its continuation. We've seen how the federal government essentially created redlining during the New Deal. There have been several federal laws designed to combat that legacy since then, notably the Fair Housing Act of 1965, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act of 75, the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977. How successful have those efforts been? There, it's a little complicated in that sometimes there are successes, but then there are unintended consequences as well. So I'm thinking especially of the work of Yanga Yamada Taylor and her book Race for Profit, where she talks about how uh, federal legislation that was meant to include, especially include Black women, and welcome them into the fold of home ownership, created new predatory opportunities that were somewhat unforeseen, that actually created worse conditions for some of those women. So I think that what history can teach us is that solutions are not simple and sometimes victories are partial, but changes have been positive, even if it's incremental over time. And that the financial industry will come up with new ways to operate that will remove them from regulation, that, that mortgage companies will, will morph into something else that become unregulated and are no longer covered by what was done 30 and 40 years ago. 
Absolutely. And unfortunately, uh, the specific types of deregulation that really uh, took place in the 90s also helped to set the conditions for um, subprime loans, which also disproportionately impacted uh, communities of color um, throughout the country. So absolutely, I think that there is a regulatory aspect to it. But on the other hand, like in Kiyonge Amata Taylor's work, sometimes heavily regulated um, and federal legislation themselves are not the entire solution to a problem. I'm afraid that was all the time we had with Professor Glotzer. Again, the award-winning book is How the Suburbs Were Segregated, Developers and the Business of Exclusionary Housing, 1890-1960, from the good people at Columbia University Press. You can also follow her on Twitter at a page out of hist. That's P-A-I-G-E. A number of local book events to tell you about this week. Our friend Matthew Rothschild, the former editor and publisher of The Progressive Magazine, now the executive director of the Wisconsin Democracy Campaign, will give two presentations in support of his new book from the University of Wisconsin Press, 12 Ways to Save Democracy in Wisconsin. On Tuesday, our friends at Mystery to Me Books will present him in virtual conversation with our friend Doug Moe, And on Wednesday, our friends at A Room of One's Own will present him in virtual conversation with State Representative Francesca Hong. Both talks start at 7 p.m., and you can register at mysterytomebooks.com and roomofonesown.com, respectively. And A Room of One's Own will also present an evening of poetry and conversation with Matthew Charles, author of the new collection You Cannot Burn the Sun, and Charles Edward Payne. That's on Thursday night, also at 7, also online. And three events this week, combination readings and cocktail parties at Madison's newest independent bookseller, Leopold's. They're at 1301 Regent Street in the old Greenbush Bakery. On Wednesday, Jamie Sherling presents her memoir, From Queen to Queens, How the Madison Drag Community Saved My Life. On Thursday, Patrick McBride presents his memoir, the luckiest boy in the world. And on Sunday, Jerry McGinley presents his new mystery novel, A Driftless Murder. And I'm very happy to inform you that not only are all of Leopold's employees fully vaccinated, but that you too must be fully vaccinated to attend these events or otherwise patronize the establishment. As for us, well, after shows on the Nuremberg trials and housing segregation, I thought something completely different might be in order. So next week, our guest will be local author Christina Clancy talking about her new coming-of-age novel, Shoulder Season, set at the Playboy Club in Lake Geneva in 1981. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for supporting the Wart Birthday Boost over this past weekend. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison, listener sponsored community radio. <laughs>